This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening and welcome along to Edinburgh International Book Festival on what is now turned into a bit of a rainy night, I'm afraid to say. Um, thank you for coming along. It feels like the book festival is hurtling along to its last day and it's gone so quickly and so soon. But it's actually been a real celebration of various stories um, and imagination and dreams and of people and creativity. So I'm glad that we can see actually a full hall tonight um, for what is actually a very important event and a very important strand in the Book Festival Kids programme. Um, Nicola Morgan is along tonight, um, a veritable tour de force of an author. Um, I first knew her um, from working in the bookshop Black Mills um, as a young adult fiction author. Um, absolutely riveting stories, brilliant characters and things like that. Um, but lo and behold, when I worked there, suddenly up popped this book called Blame My Brain. And I thought, Nicola Morgan? I can't. Surely not. Um, and it was a complete and utter revelation to me. I had no idea that this side existed to Nicola's character. Um, and I had no idea of her interest in what motivates young people, which actually you know, feeds back into her works in fiction, storytelling and everything like that. Um, Nicola has, um, if I'm right in saying, no formal training. She's not here as a scientist tonight. You know, she's not here as a psychologist tonight. But she is here tonight for you. And what I want tonight is to kind of create that bit of conversation and dialogue that happens in the book festival. So now the doors are closed, actually. The event is for you guys. Nicola will give a presentation. Um, she'll speak about what the 21st century is doing to our children. That could be you. Um, it could also be, actually, what the 21st century is doing to our parents. Um, I don't want you to feel that you can't say things, that you can't ask Nicola things. This event is for you as an audience to ask anything that you want that's been brought up. So I'll hand over to Nicola um, and she'll give her presentation, okay? Thank you very much. Thank you, Callum. And thank you all um, very, very much for coming. Um, I must say I was really surprised when I heard that this event had sold out in two days. And I thought about why that might be, and I decided the only, the only thing I could come up with was that you'd spotted that the title in the programme, What is the 21st Century Doing to Our Teenagers?, bears absolutely no relation to the subtitle, The Science of Reading for Pleasure. Um, and I decided that you'd decided that this was some kind of fringe comedy show and you were going to come along and um, watch me try to do the impossible and link those two titles. Um, I am going to try to link the titles. I will speak much more about what I think the 21st century is doing to our teenagers more than the other part. Um, and partly I will speak about that a lot more because there is so much to say about that. There is far more than I thought there was when I came up with the title um, some months ago. They ask you just to come up with a title for the book festival events, and I came up with this title, um, not having really thought about it. But the more I thought about a whole load of questions to do with that, the more I realised there is just a massive amount to say. So much so that I decided a few days ago that I am actually going to write a book of that title, What is the 21st Century Doing to Our Teenagers? Um, I became more and more interested in it. I thought I'd finished preparing it a couple of weeks ago, and then it seemed that every day I would come across something else, something else, not so much in the news, because the news is not the best way to find out things that are really happening in our brains and in our lives, but things in the research that I was looking at that would send me off in another direction. So, in a way, I don't have so much the answers, but I have a lot more questions to ask. I think I'm getting the hang of what are the questions we need to ask ourselves about what the 21st century might be doing um, to our teenagers. Now, because there will be a mass of information for me to give you, and because I won't have time to give it to you all, and because I don't have the brain space or the time in this talk to give you all the references to the research that has informed what I'm going to say, um, I have done, and some of you might have noticed, a blog post today. If you look on the blog post on my website today, you will find um, 
uh, an article that I've written with over 50 links to books and websites and research papers that you might like to go to if you're interested in reading further about um, any of the things that, that I'm going to say. So please do that. Please look at my website and please do come and speak to me afterwards in the book tent and ideally buy a book. But um, in any case, I have free things to give away and um, I'm very happy to answer more questions then as well. So um, who am I then? Who, who is this person who claims to have something to say on this topic? As Callum said at the beginning, um, I'm not a scientist. I don't even have biology O-level. But Susan Greenfield wasn't a scientist um, originally either. So I'm not a scientist, but I have for the last 20 or more years been reading the original research of the scientists who are doing the research on the teenage brain and also what the brain does when we read, so the difference between reading fiction and non-fiction, between digital and print, etc. Um, and also on what might be happening with what the internet may be doing, may or may not be doing to our brains in terms of digital distraction. So those are the things that I um, am as much of an amateur expert in um, as I possibly can be. I like to call myself an interpreter. Uh, so I'm not the research scientist, I'm an interpreter of the science and I go to the scientists themselves when I need to make sure that I've understood something properly. I'm also an optimist, um, and I say that because over the next half hour you're going to doubt that I could possibly be an optimist while telling you so many worrying things. But I am, I remain an optimist despite everything worrying that I read. I think I like to call myself an optimistic warrior. I think that being an optimistic warrior is a very good starting point for being a pragmatist, because I am a pragmatist. There's absolutely no point in worrying pessimistically. There's no point in saying everything was so much better in our day, everything, everything nowadays is bad. We have to, if we think something is bad, we have to understand why it might be, and we have to look at ways to put it right and make sure it doesn't go wrong. So I am an optimist, I'm an, an, a pragmatist, even when I am a warrior. And my core belief and the thing that underpins um, everything that I do when I write about the teenage brain or teenage stress for young people is that when we, whatever age we are, understand as much as we possibly can about why we do the things we do and why we feel and think the things that we think and feel, then we can have more control. And the whole thing about stress and mental health and achieving our potential is understanding the things that we can have control about and attempting to try to ignore, try to put on one side those things we can't have any control about. And what we now know about the human brain, what we've learned over the last um, 15 to 20 years, I believe allows us, if we use it properly, if we look at the research properly, to have more control than you might think if all you read is the negative newspaper headlines. So um, before I try to answer the question then, um, I just want to say a few things, a few general points about adolescents, about um, teenagers. And I know that there are some teenagers in the room, which is fantastic, um, as long as at the end of it they don't tell me that I'm talking complete rubbish. But I would like to be, I'm always happy to be challenged um, by them. So a few things that I'd like to say about teenagers so that you know where I'm coming from. Firstly, they are all different. And I will never fall into the trap of thinking or appearing to think that teenagers are all the same thing. They are all different. They are all individuals. They start off with different brains to start with. They're brought up in different circumstances, different families, different societies, different cultures. So they are all different, and we must never forget that. So when we talk about teenagers and adolescents, we're necessarily making generalizations. And obviously, generalizations are risky things to make if we don't make them properly and in a considered way. But there, are, there is enough truth behind these generalizations. We have enough of the science now, and there are very few scientists left who would argue that adolescence is not um, a, a specific, separate um, biological stage. It is a de developmental stage. There have been studies done over many, many different cultures. Having said that, the different culture and different society that you are brought up in will have some effects, obviously, on behavior. But you've got, for 
example, dating back from the early 1990s, a massive cross-cultural study by Schlegel and Barry of 175 different tribal and traditional cultures all around the world. So lest we think that it, this is just something about, about us, about our society, these studies have been done on tribal and traditional cultures all around the world, showing that in all of these cultures there is some recognisable stage of development which feels and seems different. Um, lest we think that it's modern, that adolescence is some kind of modern thing that we have created, particularly in societies like ours, Western liberal, liberal developed societies, and that we were never teenagers in our day, then um, I need to stop you in your tracks if you are thinking that, if you do think it, that it's a purely modern phenomenon. I need to remind you that um, scientists now know that some other mammals also have a period of adolescence. Rats and monkeys, for example, have a period where there are some similar brain changes, physical brain changes that take place, and some um, amusingly parallel behaviours as well. But my favourite proof for anyone who thinks that adolescence is purely a modern thing comes from literature. So writers over the centuries, right back as far as Aristotle, have talked about this age group um, in negative terms. And my favourite quote um, comes from Shakespeare, from The Winter's Tale, where Shakespeare has one of the shepherds saying to the other, I would there were no age between 10 and 3 and 20. So Shakespeare puts adolescence as starting at age 10 and finishing at 23. I would there were no age between 10 and 3 and 20, or that youth would sleep out the rest, for there is nothing in the between save getting wenches with child, wronging the ancientry, stealing and fighting. So that was Shakespeare's opinion, and if that was happening in his day, then we can't argue that when I was a teenager, it wasn't happening. But I think it's also really important to say that adolescence is not always a negative, difficult time. And that many, many, many teenagers do an amazing job either getting on with what they have to do day after day in the difficult environment of school and working for their exams, or doing the things like training for athletics. So where would our Olympians be if they hadn't spent their teenage years spending a, a lot of time doing that training? So many, many teenagers teenagers don't suffer the stresses and the negative stereotypes that we would put them under. Not all of them are stressed. In fact, um, quite often, after I've done a talk for parents, parent, a parent will come up to me at the end and say, do you have any suggestions for how to make my son more stressed? <laughs> so not all teenagers are stressed. But there is something which affects us all, and this is really important when we look at what the modern age, what the 21st century might be doing to our teenagers. Something which affects us all, whatever age we are, but teenagers are blamed for it most, and that is the effect of peer pressure. There's some fascinating research, and again, whenever I say there's some fascinating research, if you want to find what it is, it's all on my blog post from today. But there's some fascinating research that shows that we, whatever age we are, tend to take on the actions and emotions and values of the people around us. And teenagers have the reputation for doing that more than any other age group. Adults, parents and teachers tend to blame teenagers, tend to say, why do they care about what their friends think more than what I think as the adult? And that is because peer pressure is really, really fundamentally important for good evolutionary reasons for teenagers, more so than it is. In other words, they have more excuse than, than we do. Because adolescence is about breaking away. It's fundamentally about breaking away from the safety and security and protection of those childhood years where, in the ideal circumstances, although obviously this is not always the case, you have that secure family unit with the adults showing you what to think, what to believe, telling you what to do, making your decisions for you, they have somehow to get away from that to being independent adults, which is what we mostly want for them, that they will be independent, having their own values, their own opinions, making their own way in the world. So necessarily, or almost necessarily, there is a kind of breaking away, and that that can cause some of the, some of the arguments that um, teenagers have but with their parents. So that's to give you a kind of overview of how I think we should think about adolescents before we come to look at what might be going on in their lives. So what I want to um, talk about today is 
answer the question in two ways. Um, firstly, to ask whether teenagers are behaving worse nowadays compared with previously, and secondly, to ask whether it is worse for them, whether um, 21st century life, whether it's more stressful being a teenager now, let's say, than it was when I was a teenager to look at what some of the effects of that might be and then seamlessly to merge that into something about reading for pleasure and this word um, redaxation. So, to answer the question first as to whether teenagers today behave worse, now bearing in mind I'm picking out statistics here, but I think it's really important not to be over negative. And I think I would answer that question with a simple no. Teenagers nowadays are not, in general, behaving worse um, than they did a generation ago, uh, 50 years ago, whatever. And so here are some of the um, some of the evidence for that. Don't worry, by the way, about if any of you are trying to take notes and remember these facts. On my blog today, I've also put this whole PowerPoint presentation. So you can look at the references, you can take down any notes and dates um, that you want to do. So a whole load of things have improved over the last few years. And a really um, important study which indicates that is a longitudinal study, which means that it's taken a large group of teenagers, in this case I think about 15,000, and followed them over a period of nine years. So this was a study of young people in England, but there's no um, suggestion, I think, that anything would be anything different in any other parts of the UK. So the first study was from 2004 to 2010, and so that is already reported. The second study has just started 2013 and will finish in six or seven years' time. And that has, the beginning of that has started to report. So we can now look at a, compa a direct comparison between how 13 and 14-year-olds um, are feeling and behaving and also how their parents are feeling about it compared with um, that period before. And just to go very, very quickly, I'm not going to um, go through all of those things, but you can see that a whole load of things have improved, whether it's truancy, the numbers who've tried alcohol, etc., have gone down, and we've got an increase in planning to stay at school, etc., etc., how they describe relationships with their parents. Um, that figure there is M for re relationship with a mother, and F is relationship, um, sorry, F is relationship with um, father. And so numbers of families eating together, all of these things. So all of these things are good. But the problem is that these positive trends are not universal over our society. So in poorer areas, these positive trends are not seen so much. Where austerity strikes, austerity strikes young people very, very hard whether it's with their parents in poverty, whether it's with poor mental health funding, parental stress, unemployment, low pay for young people, cuts in benefits to the under-25s, etc. So austerity affects young people um, very, very much. But to answer the second question, or to start to answer the second question, is life today more stressful for teenagers than it was? And I would say, um, undoubtedly, in most ways, yes. And one thing underpins um, everything, and that is the internet. Or not everything, but almost everything. So the internet brings us extra knowledge, a massive amount of extra knowledge out there for teenagers. Teenagers know far more about far more things than I knew when I was their age. All of the information is out there. They are also, I would argue, because of this, generally speaking, m much more broad-minded. When I was a teenager, the only people I knew, the only views I heard, were the people that I lived with and went to school with. And I lived in the middle of the country, so it was a very, very limited viewpoint. And teenagers have a much, much wider viewpoint now. But there is an enormous information overload, and there are masses of figures to describe quite scarily how much more information there is out there than there used to be. And just to give you two figures, um, in 2011, there was every day five times as much information out there for us to take in, or rather we took in five times more um, information every day as in 1986. And in any one month, and to take as an example January 2012, in January 2012, 
there was an extra five exabytes. Now, I'm no mathematician, but an exabyte has got a lot of zeros in it. Five exabytes of new data on the internet, which is the equivalent of 50,000 times the number of words in the whole of the American Library of Congress. So that's in one month, that amount extra material out there for us potentially to access. And I would suggest that people of all ages perhaps know about more things, but that they don't know about it very deeply. And I think one of the mistakes we often make at all ages is that we read something, we read one book, we read one newspaper article, we read one scientific piece, and we're suddenly the expert on that, and we suddenly start um, quoting it quoting it, and I would argue that we don't necessarily know um, deeply about these things. Also, the constant repetition of bad news has a, a negative emotional effect. The more times we hear whatever piece of bad news, whatever tragedy has just happened, or the more times we see an image of something that has just happened, and I'm thinking particularly, well, the first time I thought about this was with the, the Twin Towers falling. We saw that image over and over and over again. Every time we see that image or hear a bad piece of news, that's a little bit of a downer for us. So it, it can have, if particularly to anyone who's vulnerable, um, a negative emotional effect. So then, the other thing, social networking. Obviously, massively important for all age groups, massively important for teenagers, and bringing loads and loads of benefits in terms of being able to be in touch with loads and loads of different sorts of people. But there are downsides to that. Now, Dunbar's number, Robin Dunbar is an evolutionary biologist who's looked into social groups and has worked out, and you need to read the book or read the article to understand exactly how, but worked out um, that different types of mammal, different types of primate, depending on the size of their brain, have a different potential social group that they can manage. And Dunbar's number for humans is roughly 150, which is to say that roughly 150 is the number of social connections that we can actually manage and keep them maintained. Now, if you think about how many friends people have on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever, then it's usually a lot more than 150. So the stress, the, the tax on um, function when we try to manage those, those friendships um, can be very difficult. The social networking also brings um, a whole load of competition. The un unre unrealistic goal of perfection has been shown to be um, very often a trigger for depressive type illnesses. It's a very much a factor of certain types of depression that you have these unrealistic goals. And the internet and social media and seeing these perfect people out there showing you their perfect lives and only showing you their perfect pictures and not telling you the bad things that they're, that they're doing can give you an unrealistic goal of perfection. And the whole privacy thing is something that I obviously didn't have to deal with when I was a teenager. It's been shown, interestingly, that every time we, and obviously some people won't fall into this bracket, but it's a, a human behavior, apparently, every time we share a piece of personal information, there's a little dopamine rush in the brain, and you'll, many of you, all the adults, will have heard of dopamine, and any teenagers I've spoken to will also have heard about it, because I talk about it a lot. Dopamine, I call it the yes chemical. It's a chemical that is absolutely necessary for good brain function. It's the chemical that keeps you awake, keeps you alert, but it's a chemical that we want more and more of. It's a thrill chemical. And sharing private information about ourselves, apparently, counterintuitively, gives us um, one of those extra rushes of uh, dopamine. A load more peer pressure coming from social networking. And sometimes that peer pressure can lead people to come to incorrect conclusions about things, such as the level of risk or something, or what is, what is important. There's a sense that the loudest voice is the most important, and the loudest voice isn't necessarily the most important. Often the people who shout loudest on the internet are not saying the, the truth, the things that we would want to think about. And um, cyberbullying, I hardly need to, well, I don't need to explain um, what that is, so I'm not going to take time doing that. And there is more, and I'm going to go very, very quickly through this because um, I want to uh, give you a chance to ask questions as soon as possible. But there is more. Um, online porn. Now, before I put up on the next um, bit of the slide some of the 
things to think about with that. I think it's really important to put this into perspective. We don't really know what's going on in terms of numbers of young people accessing online porn. There are some really scary statistics, and I'm not quite sure that I completely believe them. Um, but the effect on those who are using it is um, profound and, I think, very worrying. And I think that there are all of these um, possibilities. I would also like to think about, and when I write the book, I will be thinking about whether I think this is also increasing. I see an increase in everyday sexism. I'm not very sensitive to sexism, but I'm seeing it a lot more. And I think if someone like me, who's not terribly sensitive to it, is seeing a lot more of it, then I think maybe there's something to worry about. Um, the last bit there is to say that the Ofsted, the um, schools inspectorate in England in 2013, judged um, over a third of schools to have unsatisfactory sex and relationships education. And then helicopter parenting as well, because um, yeah, parents feel guilty about everything, but some of this is their fault. Helicopter parenting is the phrase that describes parents who, and we've all been tempted to do it because it's really hard not to because the world is a scary place, who hover. Who hover and don't let their young people make mistakes of their own. We have this massive pressure to succeed. Parents and schools have pressure to succeed. And we understandably and, and almost necessarily put that pressure onto our young people. We're very afraid of things happening to them. And we hear about bad things happening, even though bad things are not happening any more than they used to. We're hearing about it so much more. And so we try to make life as safe as possible. We remove as many risks as we possibly can. And unfortunately, the risks that are left behind are the big bad ones, the drugs and alcohol, because it's very hard to remove those risks. But if we remove all the other risks, then what other risks do risk-taking teenagers have to take? Then um, exams as well, over-examined and over here. We have so many more exams than I used to. The body is designed to have stress responses. We're designed to be stressed about something, and then the thing is over, and we can relax again. So if you think about the exam system when I was at school, when you had public exams twice, once in the last few weeks of school and once two years before that, that really wasn't a big strain on my stress system, even though at the time I thought it was. Whereas now, Pretty much for four years, and certainly for three years at school, teenagers are examined over and over and over again, with every piece of work, it seems, being important and pressure on them for all of that. So you have a constant um, build-up of this stress chemical cortisol. So what um, might all this have led to then? So a whole load of possible, possible consequences. It's been described by, um, by this scientist, Norina Hertz, as Generation K, K standing for Katniss of Hunger Games. So Hunger Games was an apocalyptic um, story, and Generation K describes what she feels is a generation of teenagers who are really worried about things, really worried about big, bad things in the world, in the way that... Yes, I remember worrying. I mean, I was a teenager during the Cold War, and I remember worrying about that. But that was only one thing to worry about. I didn't really know about anything else to worry about. We know um, that self-harming is up. And this is an, a, a fact because it's the A&E admissions um, up between 2004 and 2014, up 68%. So self-harming is up. But we mustn't be too gloomy because... There is also good evidence that depression and anxiety disorders have not actually been, in, been increasing since, nine, uh, since 2004. Um, there is a temptation to, we've heard this, this expression, mental health explosion. There is a really big problem with mental health um, in this country, but the main problem comes from the lack of funding of it, not that there's becoming more and more of it. There may be becoming more of specific um, mental illnesses such as OCD and the things that would lead to self-harming. But in terms of depression and general anxiety disorders, there is not an explosion. But the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service budget um, is a disgrace. And I've just got a tiny little quote to read from the book Thrive. Um, 
Some 7% of British, British teenagers have tried to kill or harm themselves. People worry about our children, and governments have a special responsibility for the young. So there was jubilation when, in 2010, the new coalition government in Britain announced a new priority for early intervention for children at risk. Yet two years later, there were cuts in half of all the nation's mental health services for children. And it's the wrong place to cut because if we can get mental health in children and young people sorted out, then a large percentage of those then, then wouldn't go on. And the statistics are there in this book, Thrive, particularly. Those, uh, a percentage of those young people wouldn't go on to have mental health later. Digital overload. This, this mass of information, but also the fact that we, I certainly, and I know a lot of you, are online a lot. We're being bombarded with information all the time. We're trying to do multitasking. Multitasking is a myth for women and for men. It's not, it just doesn't happen. If you're trying to concentrate on a task, you cannot have your 100% best concentration if you've got anything else going on at all. If you're trying to do your homework, you're not going to like me for saying this, when the television is on, it has been shown that the information from your homework is actually going into the wrong part of your brain. That sounds like a big statement and a big willy statement to make. Again, the evidence is all there um, in the links that I've put on my, on my blog. There is also um, a possibility, and this is something that I've only started thinking about very recently, that instead of doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is building a greater resilience, and this word resilience comes into a whole load of um, training that adults like me try to do for young people, but that instead of creating greater resilience, we may actually be weakening the resilience. Again, go and look at the link that I've put on my, on my blog, but there's some really interesting evidence coming from America, and what starts in America usually ends up coming over here, that in colleges, so university colleges, many students are asking for certain words and certain topics to be removed from the syllabus because it upsets them. Now, if this was happening and 10-year-olds were being upset, then that would be one thing. But this is college students asking, for example, Harvard law professors, firstly, not to teach rape law because the topic is upsetting, and secondly, and this is when it gets really bizarre, law professors have actually been asked if they would not use the word violate in the sense of this violates the law because the word violate is connected to rape and may cause people to be upset at the thought of thinking about it. Now, if we're protecting young people, students, older teenagers to that degree, then we're not building up resilience. And finally and most importantly, time. The internet is a time suck. It's um, certainly done its very best to suck my time away from the kind of deep thinking things that, that we all need to do. The time to dream, the time to create, the time to wander along and just think about stuff. We don't tend to do that so much anymore. Say 10 years ago or 15 years ago, a young person, if walking from A to B, would probably have had um, an iPod in, listening to music. But now, a young person is more likely, and I very often do this as well, and I'm sure, and I see lots of adults do it too, so this is not just about young people, is likely to be walking along, looking at their phone, receiving messages, whether it's from Instagram or Facebook or whatever particular social bit of social media you're on. And that is then time when you're not dreaming, you're not thinking, you're not thinking things through, you're not also allowing learning that you've just done or things that have just happened to consolidate in your brain. And so I think that this is um, one of the really big dangers. It's a danger that I'm trying to guard against personally. And I think that we need to look very carefully at the value to our brains and our mental health and our well-being and our creativity of allowing ourselves time to think. There is actually a brand new, as of last week, Jonathan Stroud, the children's author, has just started a campaign called Freedom to Think. And it's aimed at parents, so parents in the room and teachers. I really do recommend you go and look at that. And this is, um, that's really what he's saying as well. So this is where I seamlessly merge into talking about reading for pleasure, because I have a solution, not the solution. I do not have the solution to all of this, but one solution to this thing about overloading ourselves with digital distractions, whether it's my age or young people's age, is to 
bring back and to understand properly the value of reading for pleasure. Reading for pleasure is something that people like me and lots of teachers and librarians have been trying to encourage for some years. I do whole talks, I do training days for teachers and librarians about what reading does in the brain. And until very recently, those talks were based on what I felt and what we all intuitively as readers feel the benefits of reading might be. Until recently, if you looked on the internet and you googled the phrase scientific proof for the benefits of reading for pleasure or something like that, you would think that you'd immediately come up with the amazing result that reading for pleasure reduces stress levels by 68%. And I would find myself telling people this in a talk, but saying to them, don't write that down because it's not true. Because that, all of that, everything that, that the quotes from that um, came from, that piece of research was based on a very small study of 16 people doing one very, very specific activity. It's not enough scientifically to prove that reading for pleasure has any benefit at all to stress. But we all want to believe that, don't we? And so we look for... We look for truths where we find them. But fortunately, I'm now able to say to you that as of a couple of weeks ago, the reading agency has um, released a review, which is a meta-study, which means it's a study of studies. They've looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies into the benefits of reading for pleasure. They've worked out which ones stand up to scrutiny, and that one of the 68% one doesn't, because, as I say, it's too small. But they have found masses that do. And so I'm now part of the steering committee for helping people know about that review, and you'll find details about it on my website. So I can now say with scientific authority that reading for pleasure has been shown to do not just reduce stress, but have all sorts of other positive effects, boosting self-esteem, um, vocabulary, knowledge, relationships, understanding of yourself, empathy, etc., etc. So we now have, we do have um, enough proof about that. One of the things that reading for pleasure does, and reading for pleasure is reading anything that you can be fully engaged in. And this is the point, this is what we need, if we're going to get the benefits from reading for pleasure, is to have this engagement. Scientists call it engagement or flow. When you're completely in an activity and everything else drifts into the background. And reading is one of those activities. It's not the only thing that you can do where you can have flow. If you're engaged in creating music or all sorts of other things you might personally be able to do that'll get you into that state of engagement. But that state of engagement has been shown to have massive benefits um, on well-being. And as I say, reading is one of the ways you can get that state of engagement. So if the 21st century has re reduced this engaged time, this um, time where we can either drift in our mind or else focus on something, then relaxation can take that back. We've allowed ourselves to be distracted and we need, and this is what I meant at the beginning by being an optimistic warrior, Yes, this is all to worry about, but we also have to be optimistic and practical and pragmatic. If the internet has, the internet is not some monster like Mordor or something like that. Oh, that's a place, isn't it? Not a monster, but you know what I mean. It's not a monster, it's a thing we created and we can take back the power of it. <coughs> One thing that I would want to say though, about teenagers again, and teenagers taking risks and about how we have, as adults, tended to remove the risks from teenagers, well, here's a risk that you can give them back, and that is the risk of reading a dangerous, edgy teenage novel. You do not need, as a parent, to fear teenage novels. You don't have to fear them in any way at all, and I know lots of parents do. They worry about the topics that teenage novels cover. But wouldn't you rather your teenager took risks inside the pages of a book written by a responsible adult and mediated by publishers and booksellers and librarians, school librarians? So there are a whole load of benefits to teenage novels, increasing their self-knowledge, just at a time when they're changing, increasing their empathy, just at a time when all of their friends are changing, exploring the big questions of death and war, etc., just at that time when they want to explore those big questions. Wouldn't you rather they did it in a novel than on the internet? Um, it allows engagement, contributes to well-being. But I would say one thing, we do have to be careful because Although I've said you don't need to fear teenage novels, there are some readers who are in a vulnerable state with a particular 
let's say a particular anxiety disorder, let's say OCD, or perhaps with depression, perhaps with suicidal thoughts, for example, you wouldn't want someone in that particular state to read a novel which was going to tackle those types of topics. So I do put that in as a caution, but the way to make sure that that doesn't accidentally happen is to keep funding school librarians. The school librarian is the absolute key to making this happen, more so than a public librarian, because school librarians can get all of the young people, not just the people whose parents have taken them to the public library. So the school librarian is an absolutely critical role in this, in making sure that young people get the book that's going to turn them into a keen reader and make sure that they um, don't come across a book that for that particular reader is going to be wrong. So I hope that you will help us not cut school librarians, because if, if we do lose them, then we lose an essential cog in our young people's mental health. So I'd like you to support this movement towards redaxation. Take time for yourselves. Buy books, borrow books, share books, talk about books, and most importantly, find time for books, whatever age you are, whether you're my age or a young person. Find time, make time for books, steal it back from the internet. Thank you. Excellent. Um, thank you very much, Nicola, for um, an invigorating talk and something that encompasses a whole huge variety of topics um, squeezed into 40 minutes. Which is no five, yeah. That's good going. Um, I, I think I'll just keep my input to one very question, one big question. And as a parent, you know, um, I might not look it, but I do have two children. Um, I'm 46. I feel like I'm 19. Um, it seems like yesterday, and I'm very tired. I thought, you, I thought you were going to say 90 then. No, that's shocking. Um, why shouldn't we just let kids get on and do it themselves? Because back in our day, it was so much easier. You know, There was nothing like this. Um, why is it important that we actually kind of dissect this up and identify things and approach these subjects in such minute detail. Yeah, it, it, um, it all it comes down to dopamine, this chemical that makes us makes us want pleasure. And um, a very horrible experiment, very horrible but very well known experiment was done on some rats. So you're not going to like this, but um, it wired the rats up. It put a little um, stimulus thing inside the part of a rat's brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is where the reward, where the kind of pleasure system is. And it gave them a mechanism in their cage where if they pressed a little lever, then this bit of their brain would always be activated, so they would feel this rush of pleasure. And so once the rats discovered that they could do that, do you think that they did that quite a lot? So they would get this feeling of pleasure? Yeah, they did do it quite a lot. They did it so much that they forgot to eat and they forgot to sleep and they died, okay? So the problem with all of the internet stuff, and trust me, I say this as someone who is really quite hopelessly addicted to the internet, <laughs> um, it's all too easy. It's all, it's all feeding this, this dopamine, this pleasure thing. When we open our phone and we see that there's a little a message has come, whatever sort of message it, it is, there's a little rush of pleasure and then we open it and, oh, it's not really such a good message after all. So it's a kind of unsatisfied pleasure. So we, but we want it again. We're constantly, and I'm doing this all the time, I look at my phone hoping that someone's going to have <laughs> said something nice to me. Okay, so um, <laughs> essentially are you saying that we are all just victims yeah. of growing we, up and our bodies we, and our chemicals? Yeah, we're, we are, all of us, all of us. We can't get away from our brains and, our, and the chemicals that our brain produces. And this is why I said at the beginning that one of the keys, I think, is to understanding all of that as much as possible. And then each one of us individually, whatever age we are, can, can have the tools to make the choices not to, not to fire our Okay, dopamine. so why don't we have a question? Um, there was a lot of kind of activity behind me when I was sitting there. So can we have a question from maybe this side? Feel brave. Excellent. Just up here. Pass the mic along. Hi. Um, I think that in that talk you were looking at talking about the internet as kind of a dark beast of addiction and 
kind of the, the way the internet is used. But I think that personally, I think that you can use the internet in a way that's much more invigorating mentally through sites that encourage you to think and that encourage you to be more curious about the world, not that get you hooked in, into this yeah. cycle of, of dopamine. Ab absolutely, absolutely. Although, when whatever type of pleasure you have, that dopamine is involved anyway. So if you found the sites that, that, that are also encouraging you to think or learn or whatever it is you want to do, then fantastic. And, um, you know, absolutely, I, I, I tried to make clear at the beginning some of the fantastic things I think about the internet. I would not want to abolish the internet. I, I think the internet is fantastic. I, I absolutely love it. But I think we do have to, we have to be aware of the dangers, not in a, and I, th I, th I hope I've, I've done my best to make it clear that I don't think that we should be all, oh, oh, the internet, oh, run and hide. <laughs> Definitely don't think that at all. I think the internet is fantastic. But I also think that people like me who, I have two daughters. I don't just care about my two daughters. I care about a lot of teenagers. So I have to look at teenagers who are not as sensible and clued up and wise as you and who don't have the supportive family and friends that I hope you have. I have to, I have to also work and talk for families and teenagers who are really not using it well. Uh, you, I don't know if you heard this, but yesterday... Um, I, I don't know what country it was in. I don't know if it was in it was in the UK or in America. I think it was in the UK. Some two parents had their child taken into care because the parents were doing video gaming all the time. Now I know video gaming is not the same as the internet, but you you get my point that not everyone is as sensible and and self-controlled as as you. So I think it's really important that we understand what the risks might be. Can I just quickly ask how much you think there's a discrepancy between how adults view the internet, because we are relatively newcomers to it, we don't really technology. Um, you know, we have to learn from scratch, whereas, you know, you guys are brought up with it at school and it's part of your everyday life. Yeah, well, um, there, there ha again, there's been a lot of research done on all sorts of aspects of, of this, but just to take one thing, which I think is really interesting. Normally, when we practice something, we get better at it. But there is an exception to that, and it's a very interesting exception, and no one quite knows why it is an exception yet. And that is that we do not become better at multitasking. So the more you try to multitask, in other words, the more you try to do th two things at once, whether it's um, having the television on while you're doing, your, doing a piece of work, or um, in my case, having emails and Facebook and Twitter open at the same time as I'm writing whatever book I'm meant to be writing. Um, <laughs> my agent's in the room, so I really shouldn't have said that. But um, the, the more we do that, the more we try to multitask, actually it's been shown the worse we get. Or rather, the people who do that more than anyone else are the people who are worst mm -hmm. at it. So, we, so distraction is a major thing that we have to recognise. We have to see it, we have to know. And you, you talked about empowerment and, and using, using what we know well, that's exactly my message. When we know, for example, we know that if we're doing a piece of work and we've got um, our phone on the table and the phone is on, so it might produce a message or it might, you know, someone might, might call us or something, um, that on average our concentration, our focus on that piece of work goes down by about 10%. So essentially what you're saying actually is that the internet is a, is a wonderful creative option mm. you know you can explore it you can learn new things you can develop but the fact that you can just click on a new tab um you're very well being distracted and, and the way you're yeah. kind of developing and creating is very much nullified yes and so so we don't do two tasks at once what we tend to do is switch between so you're doing a piece of mm. work and an email comes in so you switch away from the piece of work and you answer the email you, okay you you can come back to that piece of work but again researchers can measure the cognitive tax, the, the loss of concentration for that piece of work. Now, if we know that, then we can use that because that doesn't mean I'm going to say, right, I should work and not have my email on. What that means is that I need to recognize if I'm doing a piece of work that requires a lot of concentration, then I should put my email off. Mm -hmm. But if I'm just doing a, you know, I don't know, something that's easy to do, so then I can... I so we take it's control. It's a real good tool, yeah, a real good tool to kind of sort of self-police yourself. Yes, exactly. But if we don't know the mm -hmm. facts, well, 
you, you know, the science is early, so mm -hmm. some of these things may later be um, be adapted or disproved. Okay. But if I think it's our duty, all of us, to keep up with Excellent. what we Can do. Can we then. take the mic and get a, a question from this side? Um, yep. Oh, right up at the back, there, a big hand. Good evening. Two um, questions. One of them very simple. First of all, um, I'm curious as to why we patronise teenagers by inventing the teenage novel rather than suggesting that they read Dostoevsky or Hemingway or Kerouac. And secondly, um, you suggested that uh, we certainly shouldn't be cutting the um, part of the, the health budget dealing with youngsters, which seems to me absolutely correct. So I'm wondering which part of it should be cut. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I should have said at the beginning, actually, I do hope that no one has come here because they think I'm Nicky Morgan, the Education Secretary. <laughs> I, I am nothing to do with the government. <laughs> um, what was your first question? Teenage authors. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, yes. Um, we, we definitely don't patronise them by inventing teenage novels for them. We write teenage novels because they want them and they buy them. Um, now, you're absolutely right that that they can move straight from whatever they were reading to Dostoevsky, and that's what I did. But I, if there had been, when I was a teenager, if there had been novels about me, about people of my age, moving through the stage of life that I was at, you bet I would have wanted to, wanted to read them. And I think that um, now that we do know so much more about what the brain does when we read fiction, and that one of the things we do when we read fiction is identify with the character that we're reading about, and that the parts of our brain that are, uh, some of the parts of our brain that are more active when we do that, are the parts that inform our own self-knowledge and also our own empathy, then I think that becomes, a, if you wanted a scientific reason for why there is teenage fiction, that would be it. Um, I wasn't looking for a scientific reason, I just <coughs> like writing um, about that age group and would have liked to have read, about, to have read those books when I was reading Dostoevsky and um, etc. Can, can I just interject, actually? I am I actually, I'm actually a manager of a bookshop. Um, and so I read constantly um, things that are given to me by publishers, adult fiction, everything like that. And some of the best books that deal with moral decision making are in that young adult category. And it's unfortunate, I think, that the category exists um, as a, a marketing tool, but then maybe as a marketing tool, it makes literature actually accessible for people, or you know, an easy step for people to come in and buy a book and get involved in that thinking and that critical process. But certainly some of the books, you know, in the past five or six years, the best books I've read are, are young adult books. Um, can, can I just come back to the health budget um, question? Because um, I, I get your point that if we're going to raise the, a, a budget, then something has to be cut. And I don't know the answer to what, to what could or should be cut. But I would want to point out that the mental health budget is scandalously little. Now, the figure that you saw up there, um, I didn't explain it properly, but 13%, th th this figure is a year old, so I don't know what has changed in the meantime. But 13% of the overall health budget is mental health. And of that 13%, a really small percent, and I tried to find the answer to what the small percent was. Some people were saying 6% of 13% is the child, child and adolescent mental health budget. And the argument of um, Richard Layard and David Clark, who wrote Thrive, Richard Layard, Lord Layard, is a Labour economist. Um, his argument is that is actually that it isn't the funding, it's what we do with it, and that the, the, the focus of it is wrong. And also that if we look at the fact that if you, that mental health is, also, is often comorbid, often goes with very often goes with physical health, and that if you deal with the mental health, you lose, and he's shown statistically that this is the case, you lose a, a significant proportion, I can't remember what it is, of, the mental of mental health illness as well. So he talks about it as being actually a no-cost behaviour. Okay. Um, just the lady in front there, actually, of the, the person who just asked the question. No, my question is, um, what age does adolescence sort of start? Because I notice a lot of these uh, teenage books that you're describing, and some of them are quite dark and heavy, now 10-year-olds uh, yeah. reading and getting into it. I'm just wondering what your opinion of that is. Yeah, it, it, it is a tricky one. Um, 
the, the biological brain changes are happening. It's different for everyone, but um, 11, even can be as young as 10. Girls tend to start each developmental stage a bit earlier than boys. So you could have a 10-year-old girl who was started, whose brain changes were starting to be adolescent. But that doesn't mean that she's ready, necessarily ready to read about something really dark and, and heavy. So it's really hard, it, it's impossible to say what is the exact age when a young person sh is, is ready for those dark and dangerous books. And it does depend on the individual, uh, it depends on the book as well. But I think, uh, and parents of 10 to 12 year olds have a really difficult task. I think parents of 10 to 12 year olds are very much ignored because we think of um, 10 to 12 year olds as being really easy to deal with. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely age, it's, you know, they kind of give you lots back and you have lots of interesting conversations but they've not got into any kind of dark um, possible teenage stuff. But I think parents of 10 to 12 year olds have a difficult time because that is the time when you, when you are being asked as parents to let them make their own mistakes and specifically I'm asking you to let their own make their own mistakes in reading. But what I would say is that I do think that each reader knows, usually knows, as they, this is what it, well, in one way in which a book is different from a film. If you watch a film and it's, it's something that's too scary or too whatever, once you've seen the image, once the image has come onto the screen, that's too late, you've seen it. But when you're reading a book, you have control over the pages and whether you turn them. And an example that I often give of that is... Um, a friend of mine, some years ago, but a friend of mine's 11, possibly 12-year-old daughter was re had started to read The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold. And those of you who've read The Lovely Bones will understand why she found the beginning of it very difficult. So this girl came to her mother and said, I, I can't, I, that's, that's too much, I can't read that. I've buried it underneath some clothes at the bottom of a cupboard. <laughs> Later that day, she went back and took it out of the cupboard and read the whole book in one go. And she wouldn't have done that if she hadn't felt ready and able to. Now, I'm not saying that she couldn't have got to the end of that book and, and regretted having read it, but she didn't, actually. So I'm not saying it's impossible that someone could regret having read a book, but I am saying I think it's, generally speaking, a risk worth taking. If they think they're ready for it, then I think they should be allowed to read it. Generally speaking. I think one of the things that comes through in Nicholas' book here, actually, the, the Teenage Guide Distress, um, you can see I've put lots of tabs in here, lots of interesting things that pop out that don't necessarily relate to me, but they are very perceptive, um, is the importance of kind of creating conversations amongst adults and children and having it both ways, you know, so don't feel if you're, you're young you can't speak to your parents about stuff like that, um, or you know, books in particular are a great way of raising awareness about stuff. Can we have, maybe we're going to have two more questions because we are kind of at 8 o'clock now. Um, just over here, right at the front. Those, well, oh, yep, straight along there, that's it. I'll answer them really quickly. Um, I was just wondering that as a, someone who grew up as a teen in the 90s, I've seen like a massive change in the cultural landscape and I was just wondering what your opinion is on like the 24 hour culture that teens are embracing and what sort of way that stresses them. Um, that's, <laughs> uh, I don't know how to answer that quickly. Um, everything we do, every, every choice we make, every activity and everything we don't do has an effect on our brain. So by doing something for that long, well, the s sleep. Okay, let's let's take. If if you're doing if you're doing things too late into the night, of any at any age, you're not getting enough sleep. And we know a lot more now about what sleep does, not just in terms of restoring our energy, but also in terms of of learning. So, on sleep alone, there's a lot to be said on that. Um, I'll try and write a blog post about that question. If I forget over the next couple of weeks, then then remind me. Um, one last question, um, just down here at the front here. This is anecdotally, so it may not be true, but it can feel like there's a message out at the moment which may link to the sort of empathy people can then get from novels, that being happy is the norm, and you should be happy all the time. You, everyone should be getting all the A stars, yeah. which honestly is like, so if you're not happy, yes. or you haven't got an A star, or you haven't got the phone, so there was a documentary I was watching last night yeah. where people were saying if they hadn't got the newest phone, they'd only use it in the toilet so yeah. their peers didn't see. Is there something, I guess, 
wider society or could you address this like because you can only really recognise being happy if you've had a time where you haven't been happy in a way, and whether we're sort of losing by saying like only happiness is normal. I think I think we're I losing would, that sense of experience. I think I would suggest that you go to the website um, Action for Happiness. Um, it's one of the links on my blog post, and it very nicely talks about even though it's called action for happiness it talks about well-being rather than happiness because happiness is this kind of oh i feel happy and that's not really the point of life at all but well-being having a more having a a deeper better wider understanding of what makes us tick what makes us work and what makes us thrive is a better one so i would recommend you go to that okay you know i, I wish we had another hour but unfortunately we don't um I mean, as you can see, you know, what was a 40-minute talk, there's so many issues that are encapsulated in that. Um, afterwards, Nicola will be signing in the adult book tent. Don't rush into the kids' book tent. Uh, the staff won't appreciate it. Into the adult book tent, and you'll see Nicola there. And I'm sure she'll take a few moments again if you have questions, just to simply talk to you about them. Um, th this book has been a kind of revelation to me. Uh, my oldest has just started high school, so she's come to that age uh, where she's going at full speed into the teenage years um, and I approached it with a bit of fear and a bit of trepidation but it's actually a, a very insightful guide both for parents and um, children of that age and that so I heartily recommend that you read it not all of it's going to be applicable to you mm -hmm. but there are certain things in there certain advice certain points um, that are worth noting out so um, a big thank you to Nicola for her talk thank tonight more podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.